when you have a vision and you hire an architect, he brings you something that looks like this. And when you're looking at it, you begin to get a little excited because what's in your head begins to transfer to a piece of paper. And then for those who can't envision it in your head, it begins to be a reality once it becomes on paper. But the next step in the process is when it becomes on paper, after the vision has been laid, there must be the cost analysis. You must analyze the cost somewhere between getting it on paper and the vision is when the cost analysis takes place. Many times when it's on paper, sketched out, not to this detail, it's kind of roughly laid out. You begin to do what we call count the cost. And as you begin to count the cost, you may say, oh my goodness. I have exceeded my budget. And so therefore, you come back to the architect and say, well, where can we take a hundred foot out of this baby at? What can we change? Where can we lessen the project? Where can I put in something that would save me money? And you have to count the cost. Now, one of the reasons that you do it before it's completely finished like this is because sometimes you have to completely start over. Because you realize as you have counted the cost that the cost of the project does not equal your budget. That's when the bad news takes place. Good news is you get something. Everybody gets excited. Bad news is you got to figure out how to pay for it. Amen. The cost analysis. I search for a picture to bring significance of a buildings that a significant building that had been built that they didn't count the cost for. The interesting thing about that is I couldn't pick one because there's so many. I saw this one thing, and it was 20 of the world's largest buildings that were never built. 20 of them. 20 skyscrapers that were never built. Oh, they started the project. And it's all around the world. It's not limited to one country. It's so many different countries that they were placed in that the cost was not counted correctly. Therefore, because it wasn't counted correctly, the project never was completed. There's other projects that I know of. They have completed the project, and when they went to move in, they couldn't move in because they didn't check with the highway department to see if they could get a driveway. You better count every cost everything matters when you're fulfilling a vision so what does the bible have to say about that well i'm glad you asked that question let's look at it in your bible luke luke chapter 14 
and verse 25. <clears throat> While you're turning there, let me remind you of what had just happened. It was the great parable that had been given of the banquet. You remember the wedding feast. Sent out all these wonderful invitations to come to the wedding. And they went and everybody had an excuse why to, why to come. And the master of the ceremony went and he told his servants, he said, go out in the streets. Go into the highways and the hedges and tell everybody to come in. The wedding garment has already been provided. So we see that everybody could come in. We know that they had to wear the wedding garment when they got there. So he is saying, I have a huge crowd. Matter of fact, I'm not making this up. Look at verse 25. Now, great crowds. <laughs> the Bible is just so simple, isn't it? Great crowds were traveling with him. They were following along. And Jesus turned to them, and here's what he said to them. It's very interesting. If anyone wants to come to me. Now, that's an interesting verse right there. Can you say anyone? Anyone. Regardless of your race. Regardless of your wealth, regardless of your language, regardless of what your socioeconomical standards are, regardless of your education, anyone could come. Notice it didn't say all the Jews could come. Notice it didn't say just the Greeks could come. It didn't say just the Samaritans. It didn't say, it didn't say just the Catholics or the Baptists, or the Presbyterians. It didn't say any one group. I'll tell you what it said. Any one. If anyone wants to come to me. Now, I don't know what some people's going to do with this verse because it hijacks their theology. If anyone wants to come, that's the fun part. But look at this. And he doesn't hate his own father and mother, his wife and children. Brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot come. Well, this has messed a lot of people up for a long time. If you look that word up, hate, in the Greek right here, it translates to love less. For anyone who doesn't love less, love less. I had this conversation with someone just this week. And we were talking about what that meant and how our, even our wives can never get to the place of where God once was in our life. You know, it's easy to love God when you're single and you're the only one. It's easy to love God when there's nobody else competing or vying for your love. But then when you have a spouse or you have children, if we're not careful, my brothers and sisters, they can begin to rise to the place of lordship in our life. They can begin to dictate the terms of our life. And so Jesus, here's what he says. If anyone wants to come after me and he doesn't hate them, love is even less than his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, for whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is not easy preaching, and it's sure not easy living. That's why nobody preaches on it today. Jesus didn't say we had to die on the cross. He said we had to carry the cross. 
See, he died on the cross. But the cross is a constant reminder that between us and the world stands a cross. Paul said, for I have been crucified with Christ, yet I live. I have been crucified, and between me and the world, there's a cross. I'm very convinced that one of the reasons that most people will never receive Christ as their Savior is because they can never figure out how to live on the backside of the cross. What does that mean, Pastor? Well, it means it's one thing you live however you want when you're looking at the cross, but when you go to the cross and you reckon an accounting word that says it's all been reckoned together, reconciled together in Christ, when you reconcile with Christ, reckon yourself dead with Him, all of a sudden you're on the backside of the cross. You're living between you and the world is a cross. Between you and heaven is a cross. Now when you come to Christ, you accept Him as your Savior. Between you and the world, there's a cross. Most people are scared to death of what they're going to, how are we, am I going to live on the back side of the cross? You know, what's amazing is we're really the only ones that have a lot of trouble with this in a prosperous nation. It's amazing how easy it is for people to accept this scripture when they don't have anything. One of the repeated phrases that people say when they come back from Peru is it's amazing how happy they are to have so little. There's not a whole lot to get in the way. There's not a whole lot of demigods to get in the way. Now, Jesus goes on and he says, and he, he teaches them this. He says, for which of you wanting to build a building or a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost? Calculate the cost. The cost to see if he has enough to complete it. You know, a lot of times you don't even have to go this far to do a cost analysis. Very simple math in your head. If you know how to multiply, you can figure out price per square foot. How much that costs, you know pretty quick. Well, uh, that's not my budget. It's pretty easy to count the cost, yet why is it so difficult? Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and cannot finish, Everyone who looks around will make fun of him. This man started to build a building and he wasn't able to finish. Or, which king going off to war doesn't first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the 10,000, the 20,000 coming against him? If while the other is still afar off, he sends a delegation and asks him for terms of peace. In the same way, I love it because it's just simple. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who, do, who does not say goodbye to some of his possessions cannot be my disciple. Is that what it says? No, it says to all of his possessions. Now, that doesn't mean that God wants you to get rid of everything you have and give it to an evangelist or a preacher or a church. But what it does mean is he wants you to love it less and be willing to lay it down when need be. It always amazes me how people never have much trouble tithing on $2,000 a month. Well, let them start making $20,000. And then they start choking. But at the end of the day, 10% is 10%. 
And it's amazing how when much is given, Jesus said, much is required. It's easy to be a steward of a little, but it's hard to be a steward of much. Now, the cost analysis is interesting because many projects never get off the ground because they, when they count the cost, they cannot complete it. They have to go a different direction. They have to stay where they are, do something different. It just doesn't work. It doesn't connect. It doesn't compute. It doesn't calculate. The figures don't add up. Price of project, price amount of money, they are nowhere near, so they do something entirely different. Now, stay with me for one moment. One must count the cost. We must examine the project inside and out. And then when you realize that you have the money and you can forge ahead with it, when you're building a building like that house on your blueprints right there, you can just see it foggy. You wonder why is it printed so lightly? Because it's just a dream. It's just a dream, a great way off. But when you realize you have the money, then all of a sudden you always want to add something extra, and so you still have to keep counting the cost. Trimming back, where can I save? Examine the project, you estimate the cost, and then you evaluate their commitment. Now that's what Jesus was doing right here. Now if I wanted to build this house, if I wanted th- this house is on your blueprints right there. That's the finished product. This is a look at the inside. You have a look at the outside. If you wanted that house on your blueprints, you have to examine it. And then you move to the evaluation. You say, okay, I can do this, but do I want to? Am I willing to give that much? You see, it reaches a point where it's not about how much can you afford, but do you want to pay it? Are you willing to count the cost and say, I am willing to pay that much? Now, why are people willing to then go all the way? Jump in with both feet. Because they examine the project, they estimate the price, they evaluate their commitment, and they say, okay, I'm all in. Why would they get all in? Because the benefit outweighs the cost. Oh, and that's where you say, come on, preacher, that's good stuff. Because they look at that house and they say, the benefit of that house over the one that I have outweighs the cost. Many of them look at the benefit and they say, you know what? I'm not, it doesn't have that much more than where I'm living now. So why would I want to pay so much more to have something that's not that much different? Now, here's what Jesus says. He draws it home. He, he uses the analogy of building a building. And he says, now, I'm telling you today that I've got a plan for you. I've got a vision for you. I've got things in store for you that your mind can't comprehend it. Your eye cannot attain it. Your ear cannot understand it if it hurt it. I know the plan that I have for you, says the Lord, to give you a hope and a future. My brothers and sisters today, God has a plan for you. But more than that, there must be a cost. Why in the world was Jesus willing to go to the cross and lay down his life and die for us? I'm telling you that he counted the cost. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was in such agony that he was sweating drops of blood, he was counting the cost 
and the thought of what it was going to cost him began to put so much pressure on him physically that the capillaries began to bust. It was close to the skin. Or, or they, began, they began to fill up with so much pressure going through his body that it began to leak the blood through his skin. You say, that can't happen. Oh, yes, it can. Ask people who are paramedics. They will tell you many times their hands will be bloody from a victim and there's no cut. It's because the body is going through so much intense agony or pain. And I'm telling you today, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was counting the cost, I'm telling you, it put so much pressure on him, he began to sweat drops of blood. And I want you to know, he said, Daddy, if there's any way that I could get away and not pay this price, please take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done. And he rose up from that stone in the Garden of Gethsemane. He stood erect. He looked at the soldiers. He didn't resist them. He rebuked his disciples when they cut the ear of Malchus off, reached out and healed the ear of Malchus, and went freely to the garden, uh, to Pilate's hall. Why would he do that? Because he looked ahead through the corridors of time, and he saw men and women, boys and girls, who were strung up, hung up on hang-ups, who were, who were getting high because they were so low. There was no hope for their life whatsoever. They were in bondage. They were captivated by the power of sin and darkness. And Jesus said, I believe that on the word of God that I can die. I can pay the price of sin. I can take the judgment of God, have it placed upon my back, and I can reconcile an unholy man Back to a holy God. Now my brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ counted the cost. And he went anyway. You know why he went anyway? Because when he counted the cost. The project was worth the investment. I could just stop preaching right there. You were worth the investment. That he would die. And Jesus looks at his disciples. He looks at that great crowd of people that was following him. He says, now you boys want to come go with me? I will not be. I will not be a mistress to your true love. See, a lot of people want Christ like that. We got our true love, the thing that we love the most, which is doesn't have to be another person. Our demigod. And Jesus says, I, I will not be your mistress. You either going to be the bride of Christ and come forth and renounce the things of your life and I be your true love or there can be no love at all. Jesus looked at the rich young ruler. He said, what must I do to go to heaven? You know the story. He says, do all what does the Bible say. He said what the Bible says. And the guy said, I've done all that. I've checked the box. And Jesus looked at him, he says, one thing you hadn't done, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. You know why Jesus told him that? Because he loved his riches more than he loved Jesus. My friends, today, the king died. The king of Saudi died. Ninety-something years old. One of the wealthiest men in the world. And today... It does him no good. 
Because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Let me give you this very quickly. You must count the cost. You must be willing to pay the price just as Jesus did. Look at verse 33. Here's what it says. In the same way, therefore, every one who doesn't say goodbye to things of the world cannot be my disciple. It's amazing how little things can be so great. <clears throat> Boy, I was a, I was a new in the ministry. The first time I ever had this happen to me, I had this conversation with a guy who was under so much conviction, he just wept. He couldn't come to church without weeping. I talked to him at his house, he'd weep. One day, sitting on the rail of his 16-foot trailer, he was that close to giving his heart to God, and he looked at me and said, Pastor, I just can't do it. I said, why not? He said, I just love hunting too much. What is it that you love more than God? You know what I loved about that guy? He was honest. You know what I love about lost people? They're not hypocrites. I've had so many people look at me and say, I'm not, Pastor, I'm not coming to church, but I'm not willing to give up this stuff. I wonder what would happen if the bride of Christ would get that honest with God. You see, you not only must count the cost, you must be willing to pay the price. At some point when you're building a building, you either write a check or you go to the bank and you secure the funds for the project. You see, what has to happen is there must be a giving up so that there can be a value given. See, as long as this is on paper, there's not much value in it. But when they begin to lay the bricks and mortar, value begins to rise. As the foundation is laid, value is risen. As the walls are erected, value is risen. As the roof is placed, value is given. It, it, as, as more, Look at me. Stay, stay with me right here. I, you don't like it. I don't like it. I'm just being honest. The more you give of yourself, the greater the value of your life in Christ becomes. Everybody's running around trying to get more of the Holy Spirit. Listen, you got all the Holy Spirit you needed on the day of salvation. The Holy Spirit needs more of you. I'm not interested in the second. I want the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth blessing. I don't want to stop at the second blessing. God will bless you as much as you're available to be blessed. Last thing, not only must we pay the price, but to enjoy the treasure, God can grant the blessing for you to enjoy the treasure. Just like the, if you don't have the money to write a check, the banker has a say-so to grant you the blessing, say so you can have this house, or to deny the blessing and say, no, boy, your, your dream is your, 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 your dream has outweighed your pocketbook. God the Father has the ability to pour out the treasure however you desire it. Let me look at this. Look in the next chapter. Immediately, Jesus is down there with a bunch of people that drove religious people crazy. Chapter 15 and verse 1, the tax collectors, all of them, that he could round up. And all the sinners were approaching him to listen to them. And the church got mad. The Pharisees and the scribes were complaining, saying, This man welcomes sinners 
There's a lot of churches just like that today. And he goes into parables. And here's what happened. Three things happened. The coin was found because when the lady lost it, she swept the house frantically and forgot about everything else and focused till she found the coin. The sheep was returned because when the shepherd lost the sheep, he forsook all the others and went and found the one. And the son returned. Why did the son return? The father didn't go get the son. He stood there waiting on the son. He, the, he didn't have to go look. The son didn't have to go look for the father. Because when the father saw him yet a great way off, the father ran, which what he would have never done in that time and culture, fell on his neck, which he'd have never done in that time and culture, began to weep and kissed his son. But the father never went and got the son. Why? Because the coin did not have a wheel. The sheep did not have a wheel. But the boy did. The boy had a wheel. Why would the boy come home? Because the boy realized that the value of the disciplines instilled in him as a child outweighed anything the world had to offer. You see, he had all of his inheritance. He bought everything the world could offer and for his friends too. And when he went through all of his money, he realized that the treasure was not in the world. But the treasure was in the father's house. The treasure was at the father's house. And it was better to be a servant in the father's house than to be a son in the world. You see, he was still a son in the world. But he said, I will renounce my sonship and just go back to the father's house and be a servant. But what he didn't realize was that the father had instilled in him what was already working in the father. And therefore, when the father and son came together, there was a head-on collision of unexplainable love and mercy. And my friends, today I want you to understand something. Not on the authority of this preacher, but on the authority of the word of God. That Jesus saw you. A great way off as an enemy. As someone trying to sabotage, overthrow, and overrule his kingdom and destroy your life. And he went to the cross for you. The son returned because the treasure in him was greater than what the world had to offer. My friends, today, everything that Christ can give you is greater than all of the world. Think about it. He holds the whole world in his hand. And yet he offered you himself. Vision. Finishing the project. Walt and Roy Disney struggled their whole life. Had money, didn't have money. Wealthy, broke. Top of the world, under the world. And finally, all of a sudden, somewhere in the early 20s, 1928, I think there was this little dude that came around called Steamboat Willie. 
Probably Brother Bob's the only one who can remember him. Steamboat Willie put them on top of the map, top of the world. They began to found Walt Disney Productions, began to have all of the things that came with it. And there was, Walt and Roy were so close, but there was such conflict. Because one was the entrepreneur, one was the visionary, and the other one was the bean counter. It was July 17, 1955, in California, when Walt opened the first Disney park. It wasn't, it was, it wasn't even ready for business. You remember last week we looked at that picture of, of, of Walt as he had the vision of Cinderella's castle. When he, when he went, it, when, when he opened the park, the concrete, the asphalt stuff wasn't even dry yet. Crazy, that's what happens with entrepreneurs. They, they listen to everybody else, they get the concrete dry. Somehow they pulled off grand opening. In less than four years, old in life, Walt was on an airplane heading to Orlando because he said, California cannot fulfill my vision. It's not big enough. And he went and bought this swampy land that we looked at last week that nobody else wanted. Bought the land, started the project, and he died. Everybody knows Walt. They don't know much about Roy. Roy was in his late 60s at this time. And at the dedication, here's what somebody asked him. Roy, why would an old grandpa have felt obligated to tackle an impossible mission At this point in his life, Roy smiled and said, I didn't want to have to explain to Walt when I saw him again why his dream didn't come true. He worked diligently. And on the grand opening, Roy spent his time on the big day of Walt Disney opening. It was great arguments about the name of it. They wanted to call it Disney. Finally, Roy stood up in a meeting one day and he said, It will be called Walt Disney because it was his vision, whether you like it or not. And on that day of grand opening with all the cameras and all the lights, Roy was on a boat at Seven Seas Lagoon in front of the Magic Kingdom. When they asked him why he wasn't in the park to handle the media attention, Roy quietly said, today is my brother's day. I want them to remember him and not me. My friends today, when you stand before Jesus, what will you say? Roy was so worried he'd have to give an account to Walt when he saw him in heaven. My friends, what about your accounting to the one who created you? Roy said, I will not squander the vision." I have counted the cost. And though it's an impossible task, I will not relent as an old man. He was in his 70s when they dedicated it. 
he died right afterwards. Let me tell you something. It may just be a foggy notion in your heart what God wants to do with you. But I can tell you this. The benefit of lordship outweighs the cost of anything this world has to offer. I beg you, what this world needs is people who are willing to remove the demigod from the high places and let Jehovah 